Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm Tim Jones, and my guests today are Richard Bellamy, Sandra Kroger, and Marta Lorimer, co-authors of Flexible Europe, Differentiated Integration, Fairness, and Democracy, published in January by Bristol University Press. The past decade has been pivotal in the development of the European Union, and in some unexpected ways. The single currency has been tested to the limits, not once, but three times, with a financial crisis a debt crisis and a global pandemic. The migration crisis stress-tested the Schengen area and Dublin regulation to the point of breakdown. The UK became the first entire country to leave the Union, while Hungary and Poland became the first to challenge its democratic and rule of law foundations. These crises have exposed weaknesses in the EU's part federal, part intergovernmental design, but also some of its strength through flexibility. In their new book, the co-writers explore this design, a democracy rather than a democracy, and how it could be improved through differentiated integration. This, they say, is, quote, not only functionally necessary, but also also normatively desirable, given the ineliminable diversity and pluralism of any union as large as the EU. Richard Bellamy is a professor of political science at University College London and founder of its European Institute, Sandra Kroger is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Exeter and Director of its Centre for European Studies. And Marta Lorimer is a Fellow in European Politics at the London School of Economics European Institute. Welcome everyone to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having us. Well, as I said in the introduction, at the heart of your book is this idea of differentiated integration, and thankfully you call it DI in the book, so we'll carry on with that. I think we need to start the conversation by explaining what DI is, uh, its history and its subcomponents like capacity and sovereignty, DNI. Uh, Who who among you would like to start on that? Uh, Perhaps I can start on this one. Um, So differentiated integration, uh, or DI as we call it in the book, involves particular member states either being allowed not to adopt certain EU laws and policies or being excluded from doing so until they meet their certain conditions. Um, So to put it really as simply as possible, it means that certain laws and policies are not uniformly applied across all member states of the EU, um, as is the case of the Schengen area or Economic and Monetary Union. And in the book, uh, following existing literature, we also distinguish between two types of differentiated integration, capacity DI and sovereignty DI. Capacity DI uh, usually emerges when certain member states lack the capacity to join certain EU policies and are temporarily excluded or exempted from joining them. So that's the case of exclusions from the Schengen area 
um, or from the Eurozone in the context of EU enlargement. Sovereignty differentiated integration, on the other hand, emerges when a member state seeks an opt-out or an exemption from participating in a particular policy area because it doesn't wish to integrate further in that area. So this is the case of, uh, for example, the Danish opt-out from Economic and Monetary Union. Um, so whereas capacity DI tends to be temporary in nature, sovereignty DI is often permanent and uh, more, or at least long-lived. Um, and DI is not a particularly new phenomenon, uh, but it's actually, it's been around for almost as long as the EU itself. But what's really particular about the last few decades and which motivated us to write this book is that it's it's become a relatively permanent fixture of uh, the EU. Mm-hmm. And on the sovereignty DIs, um, I mean, obviously, a lot of us will remember the the British and the Danish opt outs from from Maastricht. Were there examples of it before that? Not really, in terms of the sovereignty DIs. Those really start quite late, um, well, quite late later than the capacity DI, which in fact has been there for much longer. Mm. And and how and uh, why did the three of you? come to join forces on this research project and what made you decide to combine um, a theoretical examination of DI with a series of interviews with with policy actors? Yeah, right. Um, So I became interested in DI back in 2016 when the concept just began to gain some academic traction. Um, And at the time, I teamed up with a couple of different colleagues to develop a project around the eye, which would combine, indeed, normative and empirical analysis. Unfortunately, however, that grant application uh, didn't come through. Um, Around the same time, and perhaps as a result, uh, I I got Richard, uh, perhaps for full disclosure, Richard is my husband, (laughs) interested in, in the eye. And we started to think about the eye from a normative perspective, um, not least because that's what Richard um, does and I also have interest in. Uh, and we developed the first paper, which came out in a journal a year on uh, and also became eventually a the basis of a chapter of this book. Um, and then we just kept on working, started on a, on a second paper in, in 2018, which likewise has been published since and also forms the basis of a chapter of a, of a different chapter in this book. So, in other words, the, the normative groundwork of this book dates uh, back a few years. Um, at the same time, I, I kept on trying to get money for the empirical work I was interested in. Uh, and, and whilst this wasn't successful in the kind of small team grant applications I submitted in different um, places, it was eventually successful in the context of a large Horizon 2020 project, um, which started in January 2019. So it was through this EU funding that we were able to hire a postdoc uh, who would work mm-hmm. with us and do much of the empirical work and the analysis, of course, as well. Uh, and I, I hired a first postdoc in summer 2019, but that didn't really work. And so I had to go for a second round of, of advertising the position. And that's when we interviewed Marta and, and offered her the mm-hmm. job. So um, that's uh, how, how we came together as a team. Um, and, and why we combine theoretical examination with interviews with political actors? I think this just reflected um, Richard's and my research interest, um, so far as the I are concerned at the time. 
But it's also true that um, there hadn't been any research yet on how party actors think of the eye. So we also aim to contribute to filling a research gap. And on the interviewing side, I presume at least some of this fell into the pandemic period. Was that was that a problem? Um, maybe I can answer that because I did most yeah. of the interviews. Um, Yes, the pandemic was both a blessing and a curse in a sense that it was a curse because some of the people that we were supposed to interview uh, weren't able to be in- to join us anymore. Um, it was also, though, I think for some of them, it also became easier to arrange interviews because everyone was locked in at home. Um, mm-hmm. So it, from a practical point of view, to some extent, it was easier to get some of the interviewees. Um, although it's it's also very different to interview someone on the Skype uh, as opposed to in person, um, but mm. it did uh, it did require a lot of rethinking the empirical strategy right at the beginning of the project. I, I guess we ought to specify the kind of people that you were talking to because it, it it was quite a specific uh, choice of uh, uh, sample, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, so we spoke to um, essentially what we were looking for were political actors who um, had some knowledge of differentiated integration. So this is typically MEPs in the European Parliament uh, or members of European Affair Committees in national parliaments. Um, Often we also spoke to um, the political advisors uh, of MEPs. So we we realized that with a topic like differentiated integration, we needed to speak to um, people who were somehow familiar with it. And this is the, the target population that we identified. Right. I mean, this may seem like a trivial point, but but as someone who's done a lot of these interviews um, I, uh, over the last couple of years, I think it's fair to say your book is unusually concise. Was there a particular method or, or thought behind this, doing it this way? Uh, well, I can say that, uh, at least for me, there was well significant amounts of cutting involved. Um, <laughs> but I think more seriously, at least um, because I did the interviews, one thing that was really important was that the book was able to speak to the people that we interviewed um, so that it would be appealing to both academic and not academic audiences. Um, so that is something that was really important in the drafting of um, of the book, uh, at least for the empirical chapters. But I don't know if Sandra and Richard had a different strategy in mind um, while they were looking at the bigger picture. Yeah. Um, I- I, I mean, that is true, that we, we definitely wanted people to be able to understand what, what we are saying. But I, I, I wouldn't say that, um, I mean, in general, that, that I would have thought that's the aim of any academic, though perhaps not always successful. But I, I wouldn't no, have... No, indeed. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that we followed a particular method. But I think that what helps is that in, in terms of team composition, we were a, uh, or remain a diverse team, um, the members of which have strengths in, in different areas, um, but still work as a team. So we didn't mm. just kind of at the beginning set up the task, divided them, did our job, and then at the end come back together. Um, instead, we really kept on working together um, throughout uh, the period uh, of the work uh, of the project duration, kept on discussing things, kept on going back to 
um, paper drafts, etc., um, reworking them, questioning um, things, concepts, approaches, interpretations, and so forth. So if you do this over a certain period, I think the result almost inevitably is that the piece becomes clearer. Hopefully, anyway, that would be my view. Yeah. I can see how it could also get worse, but um, ideally <laughs> it, it would become clearer. I think what also helps is that, you know, we come from different sub-disciplines, um, that Richard um, is, is normatively and theoretically minded and Martha and I are more empirically minded. And so to some extent, we, we ask different questions and, and that improves the work. Uh, likewise, you know, Richard is so established in experience and has so much knowledge that comes with him in, in from that background. Whereas Martha was still very much, you know, she started basically directly after her PhD ended. And so... Mm. almost by definition would ask different questions and wouldn't be as familiar with all that literature. And so I think that mm. was very beneficial overall. Um, finally, I, I mentioned at the beginning that we'd been working for some time on this. So I think time is also a factor. This isn't a book that hasn't been written or produced in haste as some books are. Like we already see first books on the pandemic coming out. But I wonder mm. how did people take the time to write them? Whereas here really you have an effort of four to five years um, going into this. Yeah. Well, uh, in the also in the introduction, I, I mentioned the concept of democracy, uh, which was new to me. Um, but it, it seems to be equally central to your theme to uh, as DI. Your work appears to build on that of Calypso Nicolaides. C can, you, can you expand on this and why this idea caught your imagination? Yes, let, let me say uh, a little bit about that. Um, so, uh, I mean, Sandra, when, when you were sort of saying how we came to, to, to write this and, and getting grants, etc., I mean, uh, I think it's fair to say that... that uh, differentiated integration became sort of the flavor of the month in, in uh, research terms uh, mm. around the Brexit negotiations um, and with the EU thinking, well, it's going to be very difficult to, to push a more centralizing agenda without, in to some degree, uh, also um, catering to the demands of, of uh, those states and, and their electorates who want to have a more flexible form of, of integration. And in fact, uh, the Commission uh, funded, along with us, um, two other huge networks. So we're part of a, a, a big network organised at the European University Institute in Florence, but there are two other, and so never has there been so much research on this this issue. Mm. So what lies behind the demand for differentiated integration is, in a way, the uh, desire of particular states to to collaborate, but at the same time remain uh, retain their own distinctiveness. And um, democracy is, in a sense, a theory about European integration, which tries to combine that unity and diversity element. So the diverse elements are 
the different uh, groups of citizens who want to be self-governing together. So the, the demos, the people of uh, a particular political community. And obviously, the member states could each be seen as a distinct demos, though some of them, like the UK, have mm. uh, demoi within them, like we have in the UK, uh, yeah. Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and some degree now the metropolitan areas like London, all uh, recognised politically as as being different um, peoples. Um, and so democracy is a theory of how, uh, in a sense, you can see European integration not as a way of losing control to form one big European people, but retaining control in a, in a political and an economic climate where we can't help but interfere with each other and have to deal with global problems. So we, how can you retain control as a, a state uh, given that interconnectedness? Well, one way in which you do it is through being part of a regional organization where the uh, rules governing your interaction to each other with each other are mutually agreed. And so that's how we wanted to, to see the EU as this, this system of mutual agreement between states. And then if that means that they're going to have slightly differentiated rules, we wanted to explore, well, what, when is that differentiation going to be fair uh, yeah. and, and efficient? So equity and efficiency are the sort of bywords of, of what will make this work. Um, and, and when do demands for differentiation begin to become difficult to, to meet, as, as was the case with you know, David Cameron when he went to renegotiate a deal for, for the UK, a number of states mm-hmm. thought, well, you, know, you could only demand so much and still be a member of the of of the EU. So so mm-hmm. we also wanted to look at the limits, but at the same time we also wanted to say, look, this view of the EU, which was often being put forward by um, those who wanted the UK to leave, uh, overemphasized the rigidity of it, because actually it is a much more flexible union than many people recognize and that's another aspect of our our research yeah and and you talk about the democratic trilemma facing di for the union what what is this and what are its consequences yes well i mean the the um as i said the the eu can be seen as this uh form of of uh collaboration and uh there are two aspects of which are Two prongs of of, uh, of the uh, dilemma. One is is uh, the functional need to collaborate. Uh, trade is is something that no state can can do without. So, uh, uh, and also the fact that domestic policies often have consequences for other states. So, if um, you're if you 
if the UK was to uh, have laxer environmental regulations, for example, the pollution that would result from that knows no borders. It will also affect other states. So there's a functional need, there's a moral requirement. However, also at the same time, to respect the equal right to self-determination of the collaborating people. So that's another thing. How can you combine the functional and that moral aspect? And then the third element is how can you be fair to individual citizens who are part of an overarching European legal and political framework? So it's the interaction, the self-determination of the individual states, and citizens as part of an overarching legal and political framework. And is it possible that each could be regarded as in tension with with the other? And uh, democracy says you you can somehow get over this if you see the EU as involving intergovernmental bargaining between states and their respective demoi combined with giving citizens a direct say through the European Parliament and through their parliaments and and executives in the uh, um, European decision-making process uh, as well. So it's that that combination of uh, those two elements which, which helps you tackle the trilemma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the UK is obviously the, uh, uh, the the big the big example of this in the last few years. But it stri- struck me as the most immediate real world application for this design is what's happening in Hungary and Poland, and your idea of value di and the consequences for democratic or rule of law backsliding. Can you talk us through this idea? Yes, uh, I sorry, and I I was gonna uh, yes yes. <laughs> um, so um, a- as we know, Hungary and Poland have both undertaken um, deliberate steps to undermine some of the fundamentals of any democracy. They're undermining the independence of the judicial system. This is particularly happening in Poland. They're undermining the independence of the media and try to undermine civil society as well. They're undermining the electoral process, particularly in Hungary, which we can read about a fair amount um, with the Mm. next elections coming up this spring. Um, The undermining of these three elements is what is often considered as democratic backsliding in in the uh, literature and amongst policymakers as well. So in the EU, this poses a um, fundamental problem in, in several ways. Um, first, it, it clashes with fundamental values, such democracy, equality, fundamental rights, etc. And, and these are set out in Article 2 of the Lisbon Treaty. Mm-hmm. Second, the EU cannot function uh, if its laws are not applied equitably across its jurisdiction. It depends on member states adhering to EU law. And if the independence of courts is undermined, as as is the case um, in in Poland in particular, and businesses and individuals cannot count on being treated equally across the EU, then the result will be that trust will crumble 
and you will simply fall apart. It will cease to, to be operational. Um, third, uh, from a democratic perspective, from a procedural perspective, it's problematic to have undemocratic governments participate in joint decision making. You know, it, it means that decisions that bind all EU citizens uh, when they're in EU territory are co-produced by undemocratic actors. And that's, of course, clearly problematic. Like, I don't wish to be co-governed by Orban. I don't see this as a, as a democratic mm -hmm. uh, thing. So the EU has met a number of difficulties coming to terms with the situation, um, that democratic backsliding that's occurring in Hungary and, and Poland. Uh, and in particular, it is immobilized by the legal necessity of unanimity to initiate action against any offending state. Um, so as long as Hungary and Poland back each other, Uh, as regards democratic backsliding, which they do, of course, uh, they don't have much to fear. And as a result, action against uh, them by means of Article 7, which foresees such actions, uh, has been dubbed the nuclear option uh, uh, in, in referring to nuclear weapons, uh, because all they really can achieve is to pose a threat but they can't work in the current political context. And yet something must be done, it seems. Uh, it seems fairly clear, you know, in order for things not to worsen and perhaps occur in other member states so this whole thing doesn't spread across the EU. So this is where Value DI comes in. Now, Marta has explained at the beginning of the podcast what capacity and sovereignty DI refer to. Now, they are largely mechanisms that are requested by the relevant member states right, um, for economic yeah. or sovereignty reasons. Now, value, by contrast, is initiated by the EU. And in essence, it constitutes a punishment against the backsliding member state to bring them back into the fold, is the idea. Now, um, two punishments, we think, are conceivable in light of existing treaty provisions. Uh, one is economic and one is political. The economic sanction consists of withholding EU money rather than allocating it uh, to backsliding governments. Uh, and indeed, this is what is currently happening in regard to the COVID-19 recovery fund. Um, the political sanctions where, you know, Hungary and, and Poland are not given the money they are, would normally have access to. It's being withheld. The political sanction is to withdraw the right to vote in EU council meetings. Um, so whilst this right exists already, um, what we have done in the book is to substantiate it with a normative justification. So this idea of value TI, DI, as we um, frame it or dub it, um, that works in the context of what the current treaty provisions allow. We haven't gone further than that, though we understand mm -hmm. that some of our colleagues um, would like to go further. Um, in regard to um, the type of action that should be taken. Yeah, I mean, those are quite um, serious punishments you're talking about there. But uh, one, one thing that occurred to me when I was reading the book is that um, uh, membership of the single market is the, is the single greatest benefit of union membership. So if I were a Viktor Orban or a Yaroslav Kaczynski or whoever the next one turns out to be, I might make the calculation that any sanction that leaves me hassle-free in the single market is a price worth paying to continue a rule of law violation if I consider that violation to be protecting a core national value or to be a, a core political interest. 
do you think is that a view you share? Is or or do you or do you think that uh, the kind of punishments you're talking about could potentially be sufficient? Right. Um, yes, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure um, that would actually just be a possibility even. I mean, it's true that the single market is one of the great benefits of EU membership. There's no doubt about that. Uh, what's also true, however, is that the indivisibility of the four freedoms, so freedom of goods, labor, services, and capital, is sacrosanct in EU institutions. Uh, as the UK, by the way, has had to find out when negotiating its exit from the EU, uh, when they tried to just keep access to the single market intact whilst getting rid of freedom of movement. Now, that doesn't work for the EU. Um, now, this is uh, because the EU conceives of its members and both states and citizens from a democratic perspective as equals. And therefore, its laws must be implemented equitably across its jurisdiction. So therefore, reducing single market access simply isn't an option for the EU. It would basically mean the expulsion from the EU, really. You can't be a member of the EU without participating in the single market program. That said, um, there's reason to believe that the single market benefits benefits some member states more than others, you know, uh, not least those that export <laughs> a lot to other member states, such the country I'm from, that is Germany. Um, finally, also, uh, I'm not entirely sure whether restrictions, uh, whether restricting specific aspects of single market access would damage, say, Hungary more than withholding huge amounts of EU money, uh, be that the COVID recovery fund that I mentioned earlier or social cohesion funds, because they add up to a quite substantial share of the Hungarian GDP. And a substantial share of Orban family uh, profits. So, so, yeah, yes. <laughs> I, I can see the advantages to it, yeah. Um, another uh, point you raise, which is uh, an interesting one, which is this idea of the risk of domination or the tyranny of majority f that could arise from certain forms of DI. Uh, but again, I questioned it, uh, whether to some extent this isn't inevitable and is actually the reason for doing it. I mean, a, a couple of examples jumped out at me. One was long ago when the EU um, essentially imposed the GSM standard for mobile telephony, which is which was really a way of imposing an international regulatory standard. Uh, and equally, banking union was. I mean, the British felt quite excluded or potentially excluded from that. To an extent, that was the point. It was a way of uh, uh, imposing a, a, a continental European standard at, at the expense of the City of London. Mm. Um, is that? Can you see that? You know, the idea of domination is not necessarily a bad thing, and could actually be a purpose for doing it. No, absolutely. I, I, I think that's right. That um, by and large. Uh, these demands for, for differentiation come from states that are often uh, weaker or want to do things differently in ways that respect their particular um, values and uh, capacities. And uh, so differentiated integration is, is, is a way of... of um, supporting equality uh, between states. I mean, 
you can see that within states as well. I mean, the demand for devolution within the UK to uh, the minority nationals and to uh, the regions is a way of, mm. of um, empowering those particular areas so that they can um, adopt policies which fit better their particular circumstances. And so differentiated integration, you know, seen positively, it's not just, oh, we've got a few states that simply don't want to join in with the big project, which is often how it's how it's portrayed. You can see it, no, this is actually part of the big project. It's a it's a big project of equals, which seeks to be fair. So it's also that positive aspect of it that that we've you know that it's a way of overcoming domination that we've tried to um, emphasize in the book. If, if, yeah, that, that, if I could, yeah, sorry, just go, go ahead. Perhaps just add to that, um, and and maybe coming in from the empirical perspectives of that the some of the party actors took. Uh, that is true, however, that many of them. And particularly those from the South, which had experienced, you know, troubles during the Euro and debt crisis. Uh, many of those party actors that we interviewed saw these drawbacks and potential risks um, that that the I can generate new lines of division or, or reinforce existing ones. Indeed, they were quite ambivalent about that, and sometimes that was when they had the strongest views about it. So, if you look at the Euro. You know, the Eastern member states obviously didn't participate in that when it was first launched because, well, they weren't members in the first place at the time in 2002. Uh, and the economies, of course, also weren't ready. Um, then in the context of the Euro and debt crisis, uh, the members of the Eurozone created a range of mechanisms to save the Euro in which only Eurozone members would have a vote. Uh, particularly the Eurogroup became very important institutionally uh, and central for the steering, not just of the Euro, but, you know, all sorts of other policies as well and knock-on effects. And so given that and given how the Euro impacts also non-Eurozone member states' economies uh, and, and given also that Eastern states were never given the choice to not eventually join the euro. They had to commit to joining it eventually when they joined the EU. One can see why they felt excluded and, and treated like second-class citizens and states. So eventually what happened to deal with the situation is that non-eurozone members that had committed to joining the euro as they had to were allowed to participate in those meetings anyway, even though without a vote. Um, so what they also stressed throughout is that what's important to them is that the process is transparent and, and open for them where you have the eye, where you create differentiated integration for those who would like to join eventually if they meet criteria that were defined early on in the process. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's, it's a bit more complicated in the European Parliament, this whole situation, because there you have MPs, members of the European MEPs, members from the European Parliament, from countries that don't participate in a specific policy, be that the euro or Schengen or something else, uh, and yet get to vote on these policies in the EP. So mm. here, from the opposite direction, you could claim that citizens of those participating states are unduly dominated by those MEPs that come from, from states that don't participate and yet get to vote. 
Um, yeah. but perhaps I could also just say that domination divisions aren't, of course, just exclusively legal and institutional matters that they're also cultural, discursive, and symbolic, right? Again, if you think of, of many English citizens, they felt dominated by the EU for years, and, and for no good reason, really, as my view anyway, given the UK was the co-author of its own laws and, and fairly influential in the, in the EU. So the UK then was granted a number of opt-outs as a result, and it's unclear whether it's because of them or despite of them, it ended up leaving the EU. Um, so mm. just to say that some would say that the eye creates divisions and, and domination rather than doing away with them um, because it creates different trajectories, whether that be institutionally or more culturally identity-related and, and of discursive nature. Mm. It's probably a lack of awareness of them in most cases, I'd have thought. That, but That's also true, yeah. <laughs> Well, well, but, you know, you, 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 you aren't included yeah. anymore, sorry for interrupting, you aren't included anymore in the same kind of, you know, discursive framework. If if you don't participate, that just will not resonate as much in your own domestic discourses, if that makes sense. And so there is more space to develop a distinct national identity that is, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, you you talked there about the um, the empirical half of the book. Um, uh, more generally, uh, with with the interviews with the political actors, how different were their views from your own in in more in broader terms? Yeah. So I'd say that going into the writing of this book, uh, we didn't necessarily all agree with each other on the desirability of differentiated integration, but I think. Generally, we were reasonably optimistic about its democratic credentials um, with with caveats. And that's pretty much the account that we present in the book. It does reflect this view of DI as potentially positive development uh, for the EU from a normative perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, our interviewees, on the other hand, as Sandra just mentioned, were generally less optimistic than we were. So they, they accepted that it might pragmatically be useful or even the only solution available, but they did have some serious concerns about what DI could do to the EU's unity. And they were worried that uh, some member states might be more affected than others. Um, so Sandra mentioned the case of Central and Eastern European member states uh, or member states in the South of Europe. And I think confronting their views was really something that was important for us and that we address in the conclusion of the book. Uh, where we try to think about um, how we can, how they can help us think about uh, how much DI is feasible and desirable in the European Union, and how we can think of things like institutional design to respond to some of these concerns. Um, however, I would also say that one thing that their worries really highlighted was just how important having normative criteria uh, such as the ones that we discuss in the book uh, really mattered. So we're actually quite hopeful that all those we interviewed uh, and policymakers more generally will find uh, this book useful. And academics, of course, um, as Sandra mentioned very early at the beginning, we do hope to speak to both audiences. Mm. Uh, just out of curiosity, you said that the three of you came into this with different views on DI. Um, yeah, have they converged as a result of writing the book? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you just answered my question. <laughs> No, no. I, I, I think it's probably true to say that I'm the most um, enthusiastic uh, for it. Um, and uh, whilst, you know, at the same time acknowledging uh, 
um, the challenges that it potentially poses, which is why you know we have a chapter on democratic backsliding precisely in order to to look at at, at those those limits. So um, yeah, I think there's been uh, at least there's a set of views that that we and indeed the political actors agree on, and then there are there are elements where where there's divergence. It seems they they converged enough anyway to write a concise book. So, <laughs> yeah, I, think I became more optimistic writing the book than I was. I think when I started, I still have doubts, but um, it's better now. Okay. Well, uh, just one last question on the substance of the book, which is uh, we've discussed really almost exclusively the the application of DI to the EU. Uh, although Richard has talked about its utility in uh, potential utility in, in countries like the UK. Do, do you think it's a concept that can be extended to other political settlements like uh, like the WTO, for example? Can it be generalized? Uh, is it purely pragmatic and time-limited, or is it likely to be permanent? Um, well, I, I mean, I, I anyway, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, because I'm a normative political theorist as much as I'm a, an EU scholar, um, uh, I tend to to write about the EU uh, as the best case study, as it were, of what um, a more integrated uh, global system of of uh, uh, states uh, is is likely to be like. And so, I think that one of the things that, that one finds. Uh, uh, looking at at uh, other organisations such as the WTO, is that when there are demands that everybody adopts the same rules, these tend to be dominating of the smaller or the less developed countries because the, the rules which are being set are the rules that the big players, which are the United States and the EU uh, and increasingly China, want mm. and that can be terribly bad news for for uh, many developing countries and increasingly those countries have um, taken advantage of multilateral bargaining to group together and insist that, that there needs to be what's called special and differential treatment for them uh, so that's the case of it happening internationally and if you look what's happening internally within states you see as in spain for example demands for self-determination of uh, minority national groups Um, and that similarly leads to demands for special and and differentiated uh, treatment for particular groups domestically so I think it is a a concept of general applicability, which uh, is in a sense a response to the problem of how can you have unity that preserves diversity. And so, yes, I, I hope that not just EU policymakers and, and scholars will, will look at the book, but also those thinking more generally about this issue. Mm-hmm. 
Well, uh, to finish the conversation, as usual, I've asked my guests each to choose two books to recommend to listeners and to me, uh, one in their area, preferably, and one personal choice. What have you chosen? Um, let's start with Marta. Uh, yeah, great. So for the one in my specialist area, I went for Claudia Schrag Sternberg's The Struggle for EU Legitimacy, which is a great book on how the EU has tried to construct the idea of uh, its own legitimacy. Um, on the more personal choice, uh, I went for um, an Italian book. It's called The Moon and the Bonfires by Cesare Pavese. And I think it's it's just a great book. I read a lot of fiction, and this is one that I always... It's a book that I always want to have in my home. Uh, it's a book on okay. migration, land, and historical memory, so I can really, really recommend it. Okay, thank you. Uh, Sandra? Right. Um, so... I actually have an emerging new field, and I'm going to have a book from that emerging new field rather than from EU studies. Uh, and and okay. that is Sushana Zuboff, uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism from 2019, which I think is essential reading really for anybody who wants to understand in which kind of political economy we, we live. She warns, you know, how the high-tech giants exploit our personal data for their own profits and how really how that ends our free will and autonomy and therefore undermines democracy in the end. Um, great book. Um, on the more personal um, side, I've gone for Sasha Stanijic's Where You Come From. Uh, the English translation came out in 2021. It's a Bosnian-German writer who won the German book prize for this book in 2019. And it's really about, you know, who are we? What makes up our identity, um, him having fled from the war in ex-Yugoslavia to Germany and just going between present and past to try and see where he's coming from and who he is today. Okay, thank you. And Richard? Yes, my sort of book from the field is a book by Adam Getachew called World Making After Empire. She's um, a political theorist at the University of Chicago and this is a book about how, in the aftermath of, of um, uh, the granting of independence to many uh, former colonies, uh, there were attempts by people uh, like um, Kwame Nkrumah and Eric Williams and Michael Manley to, to create federations in order to, because they realized that the self-determination of these new states within a global context was only going to be possible if uh, there were changes to the way in which the global economic system operated. And the way to do that was to set up a federal unions of various kinds, which were in a way democratic in their nature. So I, I, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in that book. And on the personal book, it's also a, a novel uh, it's Europa by Tim Parks. Tim Parks is uh, uh, an English writer who lives in, in Italy. And this novel, which was shortlisted for the 1997 Booker Prize, probably is one of the very few novels set, which involves uh, the European Parliament. It's about a group of Italian language teachers, which I used to be one in, in um, it was the very first job academic job I had was at an Italian university. And they they go on a trip to to the 
European Parliament to plead for the EU to to um, intervene to protect their, the status of their jobs because their their jobs th- uh, that were being put onto kind of temporary contracts. And uh, but I mean that's that's the setting of the novel. It's not what it's about, but I like it because it it reflects a pop. An interesting part of my own life, as it were. Okay, thank you. Well, today I've been talking to Richard Bellamy, Sandra Kruger, and Marta Lorimer about their new book, Flexible Europe, published by Bristol University Press. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming on. Thanks so thank much, you. Tim. Yeah.